Hi, I'm Shaylushi Baxi-Ritchie. And I'm her co-host and sister, Kosha Baxi-Karstens. Spoiler alert, we are sisters. And best friends. We grew up in the middle of Illinois, two little brown girls in a heartland farming community. We were certainly loved. We had lots of friends, but we never felt like we really fit in. We started to realize that there were a lot of people who felt similarly othered. And that realization was a seed for this podcast. Then during the 2020 election cycle, we watched now Vice President Kamala Harris reclaim her power and story from Mike Pence. We saw what a badass she was and we got inspired. We wanted to hear, share, and amplify the voices of everyone who has felt othered. We wanted to give everyone a platform, regardless of who they are, who they love, or where they're from, to reclaim their power and their place, to stand up and say, I am speaking. Oh, wait, 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 wait. It's okay, because we'll cut that. Okay. Out. What do you sure. Okay. Let me hit got it. There we go. Got it. Hang on just a second. Hey, William, it's time for you to go to bed, bud. Go brush your teeth. I love you, dude. Don't brush your teeth. Don't brush your teeth. Good night. No, seriously, go do it. I love you. Take up any stuff you need to take up too. Okay, don't be on the freaking laptop. That stays down here. Okay, thank you. All of that is staying in this podcast. Thanks. <laughs> thank you so much. And then I was going, you probably heard, but I was like, don't brush your teeth. Yes, <laughs> I heard you, yes. <laughs> Amazingly, I was trying to ignore you that whole time. Yeah. You've never <laughs> done that before. That's weird. <laughs> Hi, my name is Greg Tinkler, and I am speaking. Yay! We got that part done. And now we'll just pick it up tomorrow. All right. <laughs> Hi, Greg. Welcome to our podcast. We're so excited to have you on. Love you. Love your show. Uh, thank you. <laughs> uh, for our listeners, in case you did not know or did not pick up on it from the one and a half minutes so far, uh, we are all very, very close. Uh, Greg and I went to college together and have remained close in the 20 some years after that. And then when Greg met Kosha, it was like they were BFFs from the get-go. They just <laughs> had like so the, much the in platonic, common. The platonic love at first sight. There you go. Even though we had known each other for some time, it was the first time we actually like were able to- We never to really connect. got to hang. Correct, so. right, correct. Yeah, I mean, you had come to some of the stuff at the house where Greg was and, you know, partied with us a little bit in college. Um, but that was such a different setup, right? right? It was, Greg was dating somebody else at the time who happened to be a friend of mine. And then you were my friend and you had something going on with someone else at the time. So it was a little complicated all in all. Our listeners have heard about Greg because we have talked about how I poached Shulushi's friends and you were one of the examples. How great. Shulushi like vets people and there's a few people, but, and then I'm like, I like that person. I'm going to talk to them and hang out with them. <laughs> yeah. But now I got more to live up to. Nah, nah. You get to be you. <laughs> the low standard or low bar. I should say not low standard. You know, the <laughs> Freudian slip. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Seriously. <laughs> the first time that I drank, and I, my, our parents listen to this podcast, don't they, Shulshi? But first time I drank, I came to visit you, Shulshi, at school, and I got drunk. I did not pass out. I did not puke, but I fell asleep in Greg's bed. Not with him. No, not with no. me. 
But no. you you gave up your bed for me to um, sleep it off. I, I was in your room, wasn't I, Shilushi? Yeah, yeah. yeah. You were with okay. your with my partner at the time. Partner yeah. at the time, yes. But that was very nice of you to give up <laughs> give up your bed for. Uh, honestly, I don't even think me. I really knew I was giving up my bed until the next <laughs> morning. So. <laughs> or until years later, where you're like, oh. Oh, yeah, okay. I guess I, I guess I can't remember that. So. <laughs> Quite the party. It was. It was. <laughs> All right. So today we are talking to Greg, not about college party, but we are talking to Greg about his journey as a ally against toxic masculinity and all the parts of his life that have really come together to help him a sort of see it for what it is and see it in himself and see it in others. Um, but also really be vocally against that kind of behavior when he sees it either in his friends, his family, or welcome to the world of the internet, right? I was going to say, or social media. Pretty much feels like social media anymore, but yeah. (laughs) Well, you know, I think there's always, um, we've always got family and friends that will surprise us by something that we're like, whoa, where did that come from? Right. I'm not quite sure where to start, but where I am going to start is saying is by asking you sort of like, how would you define toxic masculinity? So I would say toxic masculinity is any expression of being a man or being male or, or however you choose to see it that makes other people's lives harder. And I'm just going to keep it simple like that. Makes other people's lives harder. Yes. So we're talking in all sorts of ways, right? Physically, obviously, emotionally, economically, socially. Yeah, not just physically, but especially if you're looking at things like how you treat women in the workplace or how you treat women um, in your classroom or how you treat people of color, you name it. So if I can paraphrase a bit, toxic masculine, the way you see toxic masculinity is any worldview that places men at the top as you know sort of for lack of better term apex predator they're the top they're the best they're the number ones all the time that mindset definitely goes along with it i mean apex predator mentality is definitely one way to look at it alpha beta cuck that sort of thing is uh you have to be the best you have to be the strongest the smartest the whatever it is and everyone else is below you Right. And I mean, some of that is very obvious, but it's really the little things, the sort of more mundane, maybe microaggression sorts of things that I find myself having to address and root out in my own behaviors the most. And that's the kind of thing I try, probably feel miserably, but try to keep my eye open for in others. Because let's be honest, if if you're in a workplace environment, for example, and somebody drops a really, really horrible word, like the N-word or something, everybody's going to call you out on it. But the other things are not going to get called out. They might go completely unnoticed by most people. It's really incumbent upon people of privilege to kind of speak up and say something at that point. You also get a lot, well, I was just kidding. I was just joking. If you were just to come into a room and be like, men are better than women and deserve more money and all that stuff. Like, okay, that that's just an obvious statement, but those covert ways of addressing women or people of color or something. And and then someone gets offended and it's not so obvious. And then, you know, people are just like, Oh, I was just joking. Can you can't take a joke. That's a pretty common excuse that I'm sure I have given in my own life. 
um, to try and excuse behavior that again makes people uncomfortable. Yeah, you know, if you're willing to go there with me, I do have sure. some questions about how you've reconciled your past with who you are now. And I'm not going to give examples, but you know, growing up, going to college together in the mid '90s. Um, that wasn't exactly the most sensitive time <laughs> in anyone's life in the universe, right? I think we've made a lot of progress since 1996 for how we think about gay men and women in general and people being sexualized and slurs and things like that. How have you sort of reconciled with what I would call juvenile college behavior, <laughs> which a lot of people engage in, right? With who right. you are now. And like, what's that journey been like for you? So, I mean, I'm not really sure where to start that journey. I might have to go all the way back to the very beginning. Really see sort of things that shaped my worldview when I was younger and made me more likely to be toxic in hopefully my younger years and keeping it there. And nowadays, hopefully I'm getting away from that. But I would say that we should really, yeah, start at the very beginning. So. I'm going to talk about myself a little bit. I hope that's okay. Feel free to interrupt yeah, all you want. Absolutely. It's called, it's called I am speaking. Greg is speaking. Oh, I so guess I have to talk now. You get okay. to talk. Yeah, this is your story. <laughs> so um, I was adopted when I was about nine days old. I don't remember it, obviously, because I was nine days old. But um, my birth parents were a couple of 17-year-old Catholics in a cornfield somewhere in Western Illinois. They didn't want to keep me, probably for the best. Because let's be honest, a couple of 17-year-old impulsive teenagers in the middle of the cornfield in Illinois probably weren't really suited to raise a child. So they put me up through adoption through Catholic Social Services, and that's how my parents found me. My mom's side of the family was mostly Italian immigrants. Like her father, my grandpa, he um, came over on the boat. His, his very first memory was seeing Ellis Island. My nana, she actually was born in the States if I remember correctly. My mom and her sister were born here as well. But it was a very strong Italian-American kind of vibe to that side of the family. My dad's side of the family is more the waspy kind. Being adopted into and raised into a family that um, has, you know, sort of an Italian heritage, if you know anything about Italians, they are extremely proud of their heritage. We are not Italian, but... You are not Italian, I noticed. But we have, uh, <laughs> we can identify with that. Sure, sure. Being as it was, you know, the mid 70s to early 80s when I was getting sort of that formative experience growing up, the Italian American vibes were kind of all over the place. Like everything you do is somehow centered around Italian American family get togethers or um, some sort of funeral or a wedding or something or another where, you know, there's the food, manja, manja, you know, you got to do all that stuff. And whatever vibes about masculinity I got in my youth were partly shaped by that. And as you know, the machismo culture is very real. While they can be supportive of women and minorities, it's fine until it directly impacts me and then I'm going to throw up a barrier and I'm going to say kind of snide remarks and jokes and comments and things that are just not appropriate. And, you know, I just kind of grew up immersed in that and didn't really think about it. Sort of to counterbalance that a little bit, I guess, is my dad's influence. My dad was very much what I kind of see as an Eisenhower Republican. You know, he, got, he gave off kind of a lot of those Ozzie and Harriet kind of vibes to him, you know, where he's very laid back, but there's still that very 
social pecking order in the family where the man was the head of the household kind of thing. And, you know, he would be a little more liberal than you would expect. Kind of like Eisenhower was a little bit more liberal in social programs than you would expect, that kind of thing. Did you recognize that in the dynamic between your parents or of your parents early on? Or did you recognize that like looking back? So at the time, I would have recognized that and in a, in a different way than I recognize it now. So the way I recognized it then is I would have seen my dad as a little bit quieter and maybe even weaker in some ways than the men on the side of my mom's family, which is weird because it was like a dichotomy for me because I knew on one hand it wasn't true, but that was the way I was kind of impressed to see it in some ways. It was kind of pushed on me a little bit. Um, and I can imagine the contrast, say, from the Italian side of your family. It's very loud and- Oh God, yes. <laughs> like very expressive and even if people aren't angry they're like basically their volume is a yelling volume oh yeah at all times with you know sort of the more traditional midwestern white family which is like people are generally more soft-spoken right and that that is exactly my dad's family to a t right there there's a lot of like could you please pass the mashed potatoes <laughs> at the dinner table Whereas like, it, and we've talked about how Indians and Italians are very, very similar. There's still, can you please pass the, it's reaching over or, hey, give that thing to me, right? As you're interrupting people. Right, or as you're, as you're interrupting each other, telling stories, it's your grandma shoving another plate in front of your face. Right, it's yeah, not even. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, for the first like probably three to six months of our relationship, my parents thought that Brian was like mute because he didn't say anything because he was taught that it's impolite to interrupt people, right? And he's like, I just don't interrupt. I was like, then you're never gonna talk to my family because that is the only way that you do anything is by interrupting. That's a love language to us, interruption. That's the sixth love language. And I'm gonna interrupt you right now. <laughs> yeah, but, um, do it. My, um, I'm sure I'm like 100% positive my dad felt the same way for a good chunk of his relationship with my mom. And I mean, as he got older, he kind of loosened up a little bit more about it and it was fine. But, you know, when I was younger, he was always kind of like the quieter one sitting off to the side and, you know, people would ask him stuff every now and then, but he wouldn't just interject into conversation all that much. Uh, you're an only child. You grew up an only child, correct? Right. My okay. parents adopted me because they couldn't have kids. And then they didn't adopt anybody else. So you were, it was you and your adult parents the whole time. Right. And if you know anything about Italian families, you know, as, as the joke goes, how is every Italian son like Jesus? He swears his mother's a virgin and that he's the son of God. <laughs> That's just kind of how it is in Italian families when you're being raised as a boy. Oh, wow. I don't think I've ever heard that. Oh, no. <laughs> but it, it is true. You know, I could, I could, being adopted, swear that my mom was a virgin. I didn't have to ever, you know, address that in my mind. Which is nice. Now, that's that's how <laughs> the son feels that they are right, right. Jesus. But are boys like in the Indian culture, boys are revered, right? Like we have three girls and then Trayu came along and suddenly he's like medical marvel and suddenly their lives made sense because they have a boy. Is it like that in Italian culture too? Where or was it like the boy feels like that, but you're not treated with any kind of reverence from the adults, from the parents? Um, I would say that that definitely exists. I don't know that it's really, um, it might vary by family too. 
some families that I've seen of, um, of Italian background are very much into regimented gender roles. Ours was a little less so. But um, definitely for sure, you know, being the only male child of my mom's, I was, you know, 1000% under the microscope all the time as far as, you know, oh, look at my son. Here's my son. I'll tell you all about my son. And Shayla can probably remember meeting my mother, how intense that experience can be. Well, she was, you were definitely her pride and joy. Well, her identity is shaped through me in a lot of ways, because while my family may not care quite as much about other families about the gender roles it's still there and you know donna's greatest experience really in life i guess would be raising me that that would be how she would probably say it i'm not saying that because i feel that's true necessarily i mean i see that she has more worth than that but beyond just being a parent although you know hey i'm not going to turn it down thank you very much i appreciate everything you did (laughs) you see that she has more worth than that as a 40 something dad, but mm-hmm. as a, I can imagine as like a nine-year-old kid, your mom, your mom's only pride and joy was you. And then like being the woman of the house that impresses something on you. It does. Gender roles. And this is apparently like being a mom is, is the thing that women are supposed to do. Well, yeah, but being also that she was Italian, she was vocal about stuff like I wish I had done more with my life. And so as I got older, I got to see a lot of that. And, you know, that definitely shaped as I, you know, hit my teenage years, you know, what my views are like now. Because she wasn't just like Betty Homemaker or whatever the the joke Mm -hmm. is. Or She did play that role, but she did also have some part-time jobs occasionally just to, you know, fill in for extra income or to get out of the house and do stuff. But then she always did lament that she didn't go on to be a writer or something like that. So I, you know, I was not necessarily bound by the Ozzie and Harriet mindset in that regard. I was going to say, it's really interesting because your mom is still with us, right? Right, right. And she, at the time, like, you're not old. She wasn't too old to do all of those things, even when she was lamenting them. And Shailsha and I talk about even our grandma, who has passed now, but she died when she was 91. And her husband passed away. My, my grandfather passed away. My mom was pregnant with me. So, you know, she lived for 35 years after he died. And at that time, she was so young and she felt like her life was over. And so, I, you know, the parallel that I'm pulling is just like when your mom was lamenting those things, it wasn't too late. But that right. was the mindset of like, well, I can't do this because now I have this this life. Well, and it's also a challenge when it doesn't really matter what you have the opportunity to do. The, if, if the prevailing identity is I am mom, then nothing else will feel as good. Nothing else will be as satisfying as that role of mom. And, you know, I think we, we can say that with relative certainty because that's a largely female thing. Like dads don't go, I am dad. And that's the only thing I do in my life. (laughs) No. Um, But a lot of women, that's what they have wanted their whole life. And that's once they become moms, that's what they see themselves as. And to my dad's credit, I will say that he always supported my mom whenever she brought up something like that. Hey, I want to go back and get a job. He'd be like, sure, do it. You know, get out of the house, go do something. You know, you want to go take a college class, go do it. So I got that sort of 
early on from my dad. And I think that is another piece of the puzzle that kind of helped me not get too ingrained in that mindset that was kind of pervasive through the rest of my mom's family. So that is really interesting to sort of have this one extreme and then the other extreme. And while neither was particularly rigid about gender roles, they each had their way of being rigid about their gender (laughs) roles, right? Nobody was like, Greg, you're a boy, so you have to wear blue and you have to play sports and you have to blah, blah, blah. Catholic and, like, school kind of put some of that on me because I had to wear blue <laughs> and I had to well, wear the long but the, pants. That's a, that, but that's an institution. <laughs> right, 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 right. That is Catholic. Catholic culture. That's Catholic. We had to wear skirts, right? We went to Catholic school. We had to wear skirts. Yeah, I remember. We had to fight to be able to wear shorts <laughs> under our skirts for PE. <laughs> But like people weren't actually saying to you, you know, Greg, you shouldn't like X, Y, and Z because you're a boy. Um, I mean, I did get some of that, obviously. I mean, you can't really escape it growing up in the 80s in that family setting. But it wasn't, it wasn't as bad as it could have been. Sounds like it wasn't oppressive. It was sort of, sort of the normal temperature of water that <laughs> men in the, you know, boys in the 80s swam in. And, you know, Kosh and I have talked about this before which is, you know, regardless of who you were or how sort of outwardly masculine appearing you were, it was almost impossible not to get, you know, teased about something called gay in some way, or, you know, people just giving you crap because you weren't, as my husband says, because you weren't thinking about banging a girl while you were banging a girl. Like (laughs) anything short of that was like, you're gay, right? And I mean, for sure, there were some elements of that in the extended family and my mom's friends and whatnot, who would be very much more traditionally of that mindset where, you know, you've got to, you've got to have, you know, the shirt open with the gold chains and the chest hair, like literally not in just like Saturday night fever kind of vibes, but living that kind of mindset. You brought up that you were adopted very young. How much of that was put front and center? So with your mom, it was like, finally, I have a child. Right. But how about the rest of your community, the rest of your family? Was that considered? Oh, it was, yeah, it was 100% front and center. Like the very first book I ever remember reading with my parents was one they got me called The Chosen Baby. It's supposed to help explain adoption. It was like one of those little 50s books with like, you know, just a step above men are doctors, women are nurses. But, you know, it was, it was of that vein. But it was meant to explain to you, you know, you're adopted, here's how you fit in. And so it was an omnipresent thing throughout my childhood. Um, Just sort of that whole, oh yeah, he's adopted. We're so happy to have him because otherwise, you know, we wouldn't have him. I got to be honest with you, like that's where I think my othering experience comes from the most. I mean, obviously I'm a white male. I don't have to worry about fitting in society from that angle. I don't have the same barriers that you face, but my othering was weird. (laughs) because it was like it was part of my own family Mm -hmm. and only there because if you didn't say anything to anybody outside the family they wouldn't have any fucking clue right I mean right right we talk about that right she'll show you as we talk about like the idea of passing Mm -hmm. we're talking to first generation Americans the the white first generations who were like from Denmark or from Poland it was talking about oh I didn't like when my mom spoke Polish at the grocery store that was embarrassing (laughs) the people of color were like, 
I really didn't like when we got ching chonged on the street. Right, right. Like right. It, it, the, the, the experience was so vastly different. But this is really interesting and very different because you were othered within your family. From the start. Yeah. Looking back, I can see this now. My whole childhood, I was always like, so how do I fit in here? Y- y'all have this real strong Italian-American bond thing. I don't feel that because, you've one, you've already made it clear I'm not part of the family in a genetic sense, for whatever that matters for race, which was, we know, not really, but bear with me here. But I am, like, fully indoctrinated into the family. But the question that seems like you're wrestling with is like, what is more important when it comes to family? Is it really, is it genetics? Is it someone who's a part of your family culture, Mm -hmm. even if they don't share any genetic background with you, right? And so that, without having an explicit conversation about like, do I fit in? Is this cool? It's like hitting the bumpers and bowling. You're just like, like this is where this okay this is a sore spot right here let's move back to the middle oh this is a sore spot you move back to the middle but you never actually know when you're gonna hit like I could have pretty much I think done whatever I wanted to and the family would have been fine with it you know they would have said okay Greg is being Greg Greg is accepted and I never got the feeling that because I wasn't of the ethnic lineage Italian that I was somehow less than or anything like that but it was always sort of this omnipresent thing that I was different and it was a sore spot for me i could never figure out just how quote-unquote italian i was supposed to act did you find yourself doubling down in the jokes or the girls are supposed to cook and boys are supposed to work like did you find yourself trying to fit into that italian american culture even more to some extent i did and then i didn't necessarily feel comfortable with it later in life I think once I started getting out of high school, like high school on, you know, is when I really started to wrestle with it and whether it was appropriate, whether I wanted to be a part of it. But I didn't know what I was actually wrestling with at the time because I was so immersed in that environment growing up. I just didn't, I didn't know where to start. And honestly, the college experience was really good. And, you know, meeting people that were different from myself in college really helped because you've seen Bloomington Normal. I was going to say, you also grew up in <laughs> central Illinois. Central Illinois. Not a lot of diversity. There's not a lot of diversity in the parts of the town that we were in. Um, and especially even on the college campus at the time, it was pretty white. You know, it, there wasn't a whole lot of much of anything diversity wise. Yeah, I think, you know, I can count less than 50 for sure that I can think about of people of color. I'm not sure I knew anyone who was out. I don't remember anyone that was out. I, I remember very few people that were out. That was only, I met them because for a while I dated a girl before you guys got to college there who hung out more with the uh, theater side of campus and the art side of campus. <laughs> On the science and math side of the campus, you know, we just, it was almost like we were asexual all the time. Let's I don't know if that's it. true. Well, okay. Maybe not for you. <laughs> <laughs> I was totally chased. Mom, dad, totally chased. <laughs> I was in lab the whole time. Okay. (laughs) I went to the same college. I went to the same university as you guys did. Like the brown people I saw were at the, at SASA, the South Asian Student Association. I worked with the Gay Straight Alliance. That's where I saw the out people. It's not, you know, and I I was a science major too. So I, I definitely know what you mean. The people weren't just walking around being themselves if they were out. Actually, this the summer before you guys before you got there, Shaylu, I 
stayed in the dorms. Um, if you remember Junaid, he was my roommate that summer. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so he was kind of like my segue into meeting a whole bunch of people like um, Faisal and um, some others over there. So Was he your, he was your gateway brown guy? I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> nice. I, I know I've been a gateway brown person, so. <laughs> so that's where, that's, that's like your home, your family, and your formative years. And then how does that pull through to where you are now, right? How does that influence your, the way that you see the world now? Well, so I had a lot to unpack um, before I got to college because, you know, as maybe my family didn't have issues with the gender roles so much, I mean, at least not overtly, God, they were hella racist. <laughs> in that Midwestern kind of way where, you know, nobody in central Illinois living around us is anything but white. They just crack jokes all the time. And I, I remember, honestly, um, looking back at my childhood, you remember when Gran Torino, the movie with uh, Clint Eastwood came out? Going to that movie, listening to the crap they spouted, like everybody in the theater was like, you know, oh my God, that's horrible and laughing at the same time. And I was like, this is like exactly growing up for me. This is 100% what it was like growing up, listening to my older uncles and my grandparents f-bomb the n-word this and you know like the zipper heads and all this other stuff it was just you name it they had a name for it you know i think that so eloquently highlights eloquently <laughs> accurately accurately not eloquently <laughs> highlights what happens when so many people who are like each other live close to each other everyone is looks the same and everyone kind of acts the same and like you know i think about in some parts of wisconsin that i'm familiar with you've got catholics and lutherans and the difference between a catholic and lutheran is like half a hair right right i mean you you could really just come in pope or no pope there you go <laughs> right exactly well but my point being that people may have slightly different beliefs but everyone kind of does the same thing right you don't celebrate any different holidays. Exactly. You dress all kind of the same. You all have the same values, right? No one celebrates Diwali. Not that many people celebrate Diwali or there's not that many Jewish Ramadan. families up there. Ramadan. Oh, I had no idea what those things were for a long time. Those small differences get wiped out mm -hmm. or can get overlooked when you're basically, it's, we're so similar and those people over there are so different. That's exactly what I heard growing up because my, so my grandparents on my mom's side lived in the south of Chicago and it was a very blue collar steel mill kind of area. When the Italians came over, like around the time my grandpa was, you know, came over, um, they were very much kind of butting in on what the Irish had considered to be their territory and their jobs at the time. And so they ran into those, you know, head to heads, were, and, you know, I think you said in one of your episodes too, Kosha, like back then, you know, Italians weren't really considered white. Right. Know, they were kind of, they were inculcated later on. And neither were the Irish. Right. And neither were the Irish for that The matter. whole idea yeah. is like, who's white now? Well, the Irish were probably on their way by that point. By that point. <laughs> but yeah, but the Italians were still kind of out there because, you know, a lot of them were like my family from Sicily, where they were considered to, you know, not be much different than the Moorish blood that had, you know, populated the area, you know, generations before. 
you know, my family went through the whole thing with the Irish and, you know, I guess they finally came to terms this, that, and the other thing. But then, of course, you know, as my grandpa would say, oh, the fucking Mexicans are coming in now and taking all our jobs. You know, it just sound familiar <laughs> because it was the same shit 20, 30, 40 years ago, right? Was your grandpa the president for four years? <laughs> right. I know, right? That is the refrain going back probably to the Mayflower. That's the story of this country, right? Those fucking Irish, those fucking Italians, those fucking Mexicans. In California, you would hear Mexican families decrying the fact that people from El Salvador were showing up and they would work for cheaper or, you know, from other Nicaragua and they would work for cheaper and they're taking our jobs. I think that they're taking our jobs is is like a constant refrain. Oh, I know. It's yeah. It's all economic anxiety. Sure it is. It's funny you said that stuff earlier about, you know, calling people out on it because I mean, I had to, at one point I had to tell my grandma, I was like, you're complaining about the Mexicans. Why? Aren't they Catholic? And she stopped. She's kind of like, yeah. And I was like, so y'all worship the same shit. Y'all go to the same church. I mean, you're going to a Mexican church because they closed down your church and you had to switch. So what are you complaining about? And she just yeah, I guess you're right. And I get kind of shut her up for a while. I didn't have to hear that for a bit. <laughs> it's nice. Was that the first time or one of the first times you? That was probably one of the first times where I was really just like, why do I have to listen to this? Are you really that close-minded about it? I think it's, I mean, fascinating how people get indoctrinated. I think one of the things we're seeing in India now my dad, our dad was born um, before independence. He was born some months before independence and grew up post-partition. Um, so what was that like for him? And he's like, you know, we used to go to these movies and we would see all kinds of communication and marketing. Only a fellow Indian is your friend. I've, I said, oh, you mean propaganda? And he goes, yeah, I guess that's true. Oh, it's straight up propaganda. But what are we seeing now with that generation? of Indians who are, you know, in, who are the boomers, right? Supporting Modi, Modi yeah. who is adopting these, you know, fascist tactics and, you know, oppressing in, in small and big ways, people who are not Hindu, it's really emboldening Hindu extremists um, and Hindu nationalists to come to the fore and say, hey, this is our country, when it's actually not. Right. Right. It doesn't belong to any one religious group or any one group, period. But it's really similar, right? That it's just sort of like you hear the propaganda and you just keep saying it, you keep saying it, you keep thinking it. And then someone goes, wait, can you explain to me why? And they go, oh, well, I mean, I don't I don't really know. So you started pushing back against your family and then you never stopped. You just kept (laughs) kept going. Pushing everybody. No, no, no. It was, it was one of those things where like, okay, I get to college, I meet a lot of people who are way more interesting than I was ever taught to believe they could be, you know, start trying different foods, start exper- experiencing cultures, like um, go to Diwali ceremonies um, with you guys on campus and um, elsewhere, because I don't know how many Indian weddings I've been to at this point. <laughs> but Are you saying that she, you thought that she was interesting? I know it's weird. I know it's super strange. And I actually didn't go to her wedding, which makes me sad. I know. I know. I was there. I was there. You were there. Oh my gosh. (laughs) 
foliage full she's wedding all 19 days of it in a row no but i mean i got you know i got to experience new people new cultures and it was you know it's just great it's just fun and it's a lot more interesting than this narrow view of life where you know you sit around you make the same racist jokes like in gran torino every day of your life it's just why be like that after i did college went to graduate school in north carolina i kind of pulled away from the family anyway um because i wasn't near them and wouldn't get home except for major holidays and such i just i don't know i felt like that kind of rift inside myself widened a bit more it's like i don't want to be like this i don't want to look down on other people because of their skin color or because of their gender or because of who they fuck you know it's just not it's just kind of anathematic to me at that point being adopted gave me the ability to pull back a little and say well i guess i'm not really italian so i can choose my own path forward it could have been a dangerous thing and this is something i kind of come to grips with in the last four years for some crazy reason i don't know why it could have been a really dangerous thing i don't have that ethnic view going back generations right i'm isolated in that respect as i'm my own starting point right and we all know how people are about the concept of whiteness whiteness unfortunately is not really a thing but it's been used to replace legitimate areas to be proud in your life, like ethnicity. You want to be Italian, you want to be proud of being Italian, great. You want to be proud of being white, that's something else entirely. And that's not a good thing because it usually means that you're embracing, you know, white nationalism or white supremacy to some, some extent or another. And if I had a chance to define myself, not having that anchor of an ethnicity to fall back on and say, well, this is how my generations have always been, this is how I could be. I could have easily fallen into that mindset where, you know, well, maybe I'm white and I should embrace whiteness. And that could have been, that could have been hella bad. The searching for something that felt like. Belonging. Yeah, right. Like I belong in this identity. Well, it's not Italian because I'm actually not Italian from, from a um, genetic standpoint. Ethnic slash cultural standpoint. Yeah. That my mom did not give birth to me. So I don't have a DNA connection to the rest of this family that I I'm a part of. What am I a part of? Right. And that could have been it. And it, you know, you know how well white supremacist groups love to target people who are kind of floundering in their identity. Yeah. I mean, it could, it, it could have been a bad thing. I'm glad I didn't go that way. Me too. <laughs> Me too, yeah. <laughs> we wouldn't be really talking to you. <laughs> no, I would, not, I would not be here. My name is Greg and I am shutting the fuck up. So. <laughs> <laughs> Took Kosha a second there, didn't it? <laughs> it, did. I, it that me. was good. Uh, Kosha, if you can cut that part out and put it right at the very beginning. <laughs> and I'd be like, no, 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 Greg, the other way. When you started pulling back from your family, because you were othered about being adopted, was there a pushback from your family like oh he thinks he's better than us or not so much no it was more like well why doesn't he show up where is he why doesn't he stop by for the family for the holidays you know come by and get your christmas presents we want to see the baby that kind of shit you know normal family stuff and and i could 
to an extent, okay, fine. I would, all right. It's, you know, my 40th birthday had a surprise party for me. I really appreciate people came out. They got to meet William at six months old, this, that, and the other thing. We would stop by for Christmas holiday, um, me and my ex-wife, you know, when it was, when we can make it back and we would swing by there. And, you know, Tara and I went by there once or twice, but 2016 hit and I was done. I was just absolutely done at that point. I, and as much as I may love my family, I, I had to make a choice. And like, I got all these people in my life that you're my found family, right? You, you guys talk about family. My whole life is found family. So, I, you know, I put you guys and everybody else kind of on that same level of being found family. Sure. And I, I'm not going to throw you under the bus because I have to hang out with these people who were around me when I grew up just because I was there and they were there. And now they want to vote for somebody like Trump and, you know, have no idea how it impacts everybody else in my life. Because, you know, it's not just my found family, but it's all the people I work with. I'm in academia. It's I mean, we got a lot of white people here who, who can be turd sometimes, but we have a whole lot of people from other countries, you know, just immediately look at what happened off the bat with Trump there. He tries to enact Muslim bans wow, that kind of hurt some people I work with right immediately there. And I was just, I was done. And I was like, I had to ask myself a question. Do I want my new son who was, you know, two and a half at the time, do I want him to be raised in that environment? And I just, it was like, absolutely no question in my mind. It was no, if they can demonstrate they want to change, I'll rethink it, but no. I think that, that side of the like, nope, done with you all is more straightforward. I'm going to ask you to talk a little bit about what it was like dealing with people who ex- display toxic masculinity on the progressive side. There, We know a couple of people who are Bernie bros. So what is it like dealing with, you know, toxic masculinity from on, with the progressive lens put on it? You know, the Trump people are not just conservative, they're regressive. They, they want to go back to a world putting white men at the top of the pyramid as the most entitled, most precious, most amazing people on the planet. And then everything goes underneath them. Oh, you noticed. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> you know, that side, one would expect that kind of toxicity, misogyny, uh, homophobia, xenophobia from people who are like, this country belongs to white men. What about dealing with people who talk about progressive values and still display these sort of toxic traits around like, you know, masculinity and. Right. I'll vote for a woman, just not that woman. Is that what we're talking about? Yeah. Stuff like that. To to cut to the chase there. Yeah. So that is so fucking maddening because on one hand, these people are supposed to be on your side, supporting people of color. They're supposed to be supporting women. But on the other hand, it's like, secretly they just don't want to let go they want to maintain a hand on the wheel somehow and it's really hard to break through to them because you know they've checked off the boxes you know i support this candidate i support this issue and it's very easy for them to point to that and say well look at all the good things i do or look at all the good things i think and the good things i say out you know to the public but on the other hand sometimes you don't actually take the most direct action that would benefit these people you claim to benefit. It's one of those things where I just want to scream. And I'm not going to say that I don't do it. I still do it myself. I'm not, it's a constant weed out process. It's not like I have somehow 
cleansed myself of toxic masculinity. I will now go forth and bring the message to the masses or any bullshit like that. But at least I recognize it. And it, it's something I do try to stamp out. And I know Tara will always call me under the carpet whenever I don't pull it off, which is great to have, but you know, it, it's a process. And some people engage in that process very differently than others. And when it's people on your own side, it's like walking a tightrope because you want to call them out on it. But at the same time, you call them out too much, you get a whiplash effect. It just, they bounce right back at you and oof, it can get ugly fast. At what point do you push back? Do you challenge? And at what point do you cut out? So I, I guess it's just do it individual cases. I have to kind of treat them individually. It depends to some extent what kind of feedback I get when I say something. And if the feedback looks like it might be constructive, like, oh, wow, I didn't think about that, then maybe I'll continue to engage. If it's immediate pushback and, you know, words are said that maybe shouldn't be said, then that's going to obviously alter how I handle things moving forward. Unfortunately, some people that Bernie bro mindset seem very set in their ways and don't want to change. And I understand a lot of where they're coming from. I understand that change is not happening fast enough. I understand that the change's magnitude needs to be greater. But at the same time, if you're alienating the people who will help you get there, you're actually undoing more than you think you're changing. And we've seen that the last five years for sure, right? You may not like Hillary. You didn't have to like Hillary, but voting for her would have been better for women, minorities, people um, of the LGBTQIA community. It would have been better for them hands down. You can't argue that. The environment, anything, pick an issue. Humanity. Not having a fascist for president. Right, yeah. I mean, you want to criticize Hillary as being a bit of a hawk. Okay, fine, go for it. You know, we can have that conversation. But when it comes to the fundamental humanity of people who may look like you versus people who may look like me, I'm sorry, that's just not up for debate. Do you get the sense that progressives who they claim to be progressive and they talk about, oh, change is just not happening fast enough and we need Medicare for all now. And you were saying it's like an echo chamber in and of itself, right? It's just different it's different things are echoing around and you get convinced of your own rightness. You're looking for, you're seeing similarity, not necessarily with how you physically look, but like your mindset is all the same. So you just get convinced of how right you are. You think that that side, the progressives apply a, a purity test to their candidates. You know, so we're talking about politics in a way that it's applied unequally. You're right that the hardcore progressives definitely have that bit of purity test aspect to them. I mean, can you explain what you mean? So you have to meet certain bars and certain issues in order to be considered appropriately progressive. Oh, like a pure progressive. Okay. Right, right, right. And that that you may never have strayed from that bar. Right. And if you do stray from it, you might as well just forget it. You've you've compromised yourself. How else will you compromise yourself? We can't elect you. So a great example is that when, when Hillary Clinton was running, people brought up the fact that 30 years ago, basically, 25 to 30 years ago, she had talked about Black men as super predators. That was the prevailing mindset of the time. Right. That was neither here nor there. Everyone agreed with her. Right. Except for Black men, because we're like, we're not right. super predators, right? <laughs> and Black women. But basically, 
outside of you know that racial community, everyone was like, yeah, man, black men, scary. When she's running for president, that stuff comes back and bites her in the ass. And people go, we can't elect her because she said this thing 25 or 30 years ago. That's a purity test. Okay, okay. You are entitled to feel that way. Definitely let's have that conversation. But you also have to ask, one, has she matured? Has she grown in that position? Fuck, I have. She should have. And if she hasn't, then yeah, maybe we might be in trouble. Two, there's a literal fucking fascist who's going to win the election if you don't take her. She is flawed, but she's still better. <laughs> Sorry, tangent over. <laughs> no, no, that's, I mean, that's what we are talking about, which is like the bar, you know, sort of the performance bar for women is so much higher in whatever field they're in. It's like, if you're a guy, you can be pretty mediocre and get away with a lot. If you're a woman, you have to balance being feminine with not too feminine. And you have to be really good at what you do all the time. You can never have any, you know, you can never show a little chink in your armor. You can never have a hair out of place. You have to be a mother because that's what you're supposed to want. You can't just focus on your family because you're supposed to be good at work. Right. And I mean, honestly, you can look at somebody in the progressive movement like Elizabeth Warren, who has accomplished a lot without even being elected to office. Well, you know, she started the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. She ran that thing. and It was great for the time that she was in there. She knew how to do stuff like that. She knew economic principles. She knew what was in the best interest of people of lower means. Arguably, she accomplished as much as other people, like maybe Bernie, if not more. And she hadn't even been elected to office. She held many of the same positions as Bernie. She had, to some extent, plans for how to get to those positions more so than Bernie did. But she wasn't good enough because Bernie still had to run against her in the primary. Yeah. Whereas the progressive movement might've gotten farther if they had just united behind her in the first place. Yeah, absolutely. This, this past election shows that people went to the lowest common denominator about what, who was electable. This is not a complaint about our current president at all. I don't necessarily have issues with him, nor do I think he's perfect, right? I never expected anyone to be perfect, but I think what you get is plain spaghetti. Right. Right. Plain pasta. You could eat it. <laughs> no one's going to be like, ugh. people might be like, I wish I had more, but it's not bad. Right. You know, remember who served you that spaghetti. Clyburn. Clyburn served you that spaghetti. If he had not endorsed Biden for the South Carolina primary, we might not have had Biden go off on Super Tuesday and take the nomination. We've got to remember, too, it's the people who gave you the win might be people who don't look like you, have different backgrounds, yeah. and you're still complaining about it. You're complaining about them. You're complaining about everything. What are you accomplishing? Except throwing people under the bus once more for your purity test. It's a way of keeping yourself on top, you know, in your small fiefdom, as opposed to trying to keep yourself on top in the larger world, right? Oh, I'm, I'm evolved enough to not think that white men should have all the say about everything all the time and no one ever gets to, you know, raise a hand or say a word against us, right? But it's a way of sort of letting go of big power with the P and holding up to small pop, you know, small P power, right? Absolutely. I still need to be the most important person 
And I still think that my voice counts more than other people's voices or my thoughts count more, you know, are more important than other people's thoughts, but I'm willing to engage in some kind of discussion. It's easy to be a cynic. It's easy to be a contrarian. It gets you attention. It keeps that power, like you were saying, but it doesn't move anyone forward. It doesn't accomplish anything. It doesn't build a coalition. At some point, people have to get past that. It's kind of like the South Park mindset. Well, Nobody's really insulted if we insult everybody equally. To be fair, that only cuts against all the people who are in positions of less power to begin with. I mean, if you hold all the power and somebody makes fun of you, who gives a shit, right? If, the king, if, you, make, if you make fun of the king, king is either going to laugh or he's going to cut your head off. Either way, the king wins. Well, I'm like, you know, if, if I were the monarch, I'd be like, you say whatever you want about me. I'm still in charge here. The re- one I start to care is when my power gets threatened. Right. When yammering becomes, you know, revolutionary, that's the problem. So I want to switch tracks a little bit and loop back to what you said about uh, Tara. I was going to say the same thing. I was. I was going to be like. Y'all just want to talk about Tara. I get no, no, no. it. No, <laughs> that's not where we're going. You had said earlier, you know, when you start to. When you get, when that comes out of your mouth, when you don't catch it yourself, you've got a partner that catches it for you. And one thing that's really interesting that one could be, could be something that you're like, oh my God, no, right. That it's one thing to be uh, progressive in the big, in the outside world, but it's another thing to sort of have your partner, who's a woman, come at you and be like, hey, this isn't cool, which could feel scoldy and very reminiscent of being parented it's easy for someone to be defensive in those moments. For sure. What are those interactions like? Probably the biggest one that we have, like where that keeps coming up is, I feel like if something goes wrong or she's having a bad day, I feel compelled to step in and do something about it. Like I got to fix it, use my white man power for good, I guess. Well, maybe not actually think of it in that terms, but it's just, you know, how I am. Oh, well, shit, let's talk about it. What can I do? And again, I'm centering myself in that conversation. And she's just like, are you fucking serious? You're doing this again. (laughs) We have that conversation more than any, I think. And sometimes, I'll be honest with you, this is how I see it. She may disagree with me on this. Sometimes I'm just trying to understand the problem and I want to talk about it because I am more talky than she is. And sometimes she sees that as me trying to help when when in fact, I just want to discuss it and see it from different angles. But that's still too much because again, I'm still centering myself. And that's another thing I just have to learn to tone down to get past and, you know, let her take the lead on. My husband does the same thing. And actually, (laughs) she does the same thing. You know, I never, ever thought about wanting to help someone through an issue as centering yourself. Oh, yeah. When you care about someone and they're struggling, you want them to stop struggling ASAP. You're like, if you wanted them to keep struggling, then you wouldn't actually care very much about them. So a bit of that is like, is there something I can do to make it better for you? But as, as is pointed out to me, <laughs> justifiably so on a regular basis is it's somewhat infantilizing. Mm. You know, it's removing agency from the person in your own mind. Well, obviously you're not managing it. Obviously you're not getting it accomplished. What do I need to step in and handle? Huh. Huh. And that's, that's, I think, as it comes across as demeaning that way and it, definitely is, you know, there's something to be said for that. Be, being the helper, be wanting to solve people's problems, not just the helping. The fixer. The fixer, the finder, the whatever. I want, 
I want to just make people's problems go away. So yeah, the problem sometimes with being the fixer is you want to stomp the problem into the dirt so that it never gets up again. Yep. No, that's totally me. But that doesn't help people learn and grow. We know it's you. We've always known it's you. <laughs> <laughs> so see, this is actually an intervention. All of this has been- <laughs> We planned it. <laughs> this whole podcast is leading up to this moment. This moment. Where it's like, you have a problem. Over the course of my life, particularly in the last couple of years, that I've been become more and more aware of that, like, hey, just because someone's talking to me about something doesn't mean that they're asking for my help. I don't need to step in. Uh, if someone needs my help, they will ask me. If someone wants to talk, they will ask me. And I've been working really hard at saying, like, do you want to be heard or do you want a solution? Yes. And that's something I definitely need to work on. And it's very hard to remember. It's yes. almost like I need to have it like tattooed on my hands. And it's weird because I'm very good about doing that with my kids. Like I'm very aware that like my job is to support them and figuring out their own stuff because I don't want to be figuring stuff out for them when they're 40. But it's much harder with my siblings or my spouse or my friends because I'm just like, oh, well, I'm your friend. Let me help you. Right. It is certainly patronizing to be like, oh, let me take care of something for you, even though you didn't ask me to. But it's also like it, Tara and... I know I do this. I can't speak for other people, but I will be like, you know, I just need to vent right now or you're doing that fixer thing. Can you just let me <laughs> talk right now? Right. And so as an adult, it's also incumbent on us to maintain that agency and, and be the person who says to you, Greg, like, just let me, I, I got this. I'm just complaining or I'm just venting. I, I will ask you to problem solve this or, or whatever, troubleshoot this. It seems very important to you to say that you have not figured this out. You're not perfect. And no one thinks you are. We, we definitely know you're not. Oh, I know. I know you don't. Yeah. <laughs> so Shulushi started off this whole conversation talking about you being an ally. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about what that word means to you in terms of the toxicity and the toxic masculinity pushing against that in yourself, you know, like separating that identity away from you and then identifying yourself as an ally. So I'm going to step back a little bit before I actually answer it. And I want to say that um, I don't want to center myself and say that I'm an ally. I don't want to center myself and say that I have come to the conclusions I have come to on my own. The place that I'm at now has been shaped by a lot of very, very influential people of color in my life, the women in my life. I mean, my ex-wife was also, you know, she would call me out on all that bullshit whenever I would go down that road. My graduate school mentor was a woman and she was a phenomenal scientist and a phenomenal mentor. Um, I worked for women at the NIH and this has all shaped my worldview, right? I've met people of differing sexual orientations and gender identities. All of that goes into who I am today and I have to be receptive or I'm not gonna change the way I am. If I'm not open to the way they live their life and the things they tell me, I'm not gonna grow as a person. And it doesn't have to be something like, Greg, you need to change your ways, right? They don't have to tell me things like that. It just has to be like stopping for a second, observing and saying, how did they get to where they're at? And am I impeding that process? If I can do that, then I'm growing as a person. I do not call myself an ally because from what I've seen, people who are 
assuming the mantle of ally generally aren't. They're not good at it. They did one or two things right, and everybody's like, oh, you're so great. And then it went to their head, and then they just suck at it. Well, you cannot call yourself that, but we can call you that. If you want, if you want to call me that, I will aspire to live up to it. Absolutely. In my mind, or you know, the way I think about an ally is someone who uses their privilege to push back against the harmful thoughts, practices, words, you know, of the sort of dominant culture against people who are being oppressed, right? So it doesn't necessarily mean that you're out on the front battle lines and picketing. It doesn't have to be that way, right? Or you, it doesn't have to be like, oh, this one time I did one thing and now I get to wear the pin that says I am an ally. For every time that you go, I'm sorry, what was that about? People who are straight using their privilege to support people who are on the gender spectra or um, or sexuality spectra or people who are cisgender, you know, supporting people using their, you know, their pronouns and, and normalizing that. And I think, you know, one thing I've heard, for example, is that when cisgendered people started just putting their pronouns in, in their Zoom boxes and on their profiles and everything like that, that is an active allyship. So you don't get to like wear that forever and ever. I, I put she, her in my Zoom box, right? But that's an active allyship. So maybe when we talk about being an ally, we talk about acting as an ally, not being one. You can't be an ally. You act as an ally, but you have acted as an ally in so many cases. And I, I would say that that is definitely a fair assessment. And that's what I aim for. Like, I, I don't I don't try to be I, I just try to live up to the expectations that people like you place on me. I appreciate the fact that you don't want to center yourself and that you have all of these people around you, but, but it also takes you to be open to changing because you can be, you could have people of color and, you know, different genders and different sexualities and, you know, women around somebody. And if they're not going to, if they're like, no, I'm at the, I'm the apex predator, I'm the alpha and everyone slots under me. If they're not willing to change, then it doesn't matter who's around them. So first of all, it's called Greg is speaking. So, you know, (laughs) you are actually like the center of this episode, this conversation, but also it does, it it has to be centered on you because as a person, you have to be willing to change. Right. But the end goal is not to further my own interests. Mm -hmm. The, The end goal is simply to say that other people out there deserve respect and I want to make sure that they get what they're due. I think, uh, and a lot of that, you know, like I was saying just a minute ago, it doesn't have to be going on the Women's March every year. A lot of the behavior of an ally is in the small and day-to-day, right? When someone goes, well, you know, it must be that time of the month. Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> right, but if someone were to say that. Yeah, we'd have a talk. Right, that is the thing. And that that is the kind of comment that doesn't personally affect you. And it's not directly affecting whatever person that's being aimed at, right? We assume it's a woman, but not always. It's not like that directly, they're not hearing it. So they're not directly feeling whatever they would feel from that comment. But it it creates an environment, creates an atmosphere. It's reinforcing like an in-group stereotype. Exactly. And that's just not healthy. But that is exactly the kind of thing that's easy to let slide because it's so much easier to just 
Mm, yeah. Or ignore it or. Or change your profile to rainbow in June for Pride Month, but not actually act as an ally in those everyday moments. There's performative allyship and then there's actual allyship. And actual allyship is the small things day after day that, you know, it's like uncomfortable and you don't get a lot of, you know, gold stars and yay, look at me and oh, thank you so much uh, for doing those things. Those are the things that people are like, can you take a joke, right? You actually get the crappy pushback um, instead of the like, oh, thank you so much for being at our pride parade today. There's such a nuance to it. But I also love, like, as we've talked about your identity as a, as a kid and how that's evolved and, and your identity of being adopted has put you in the position to always be able to see the outside, even when you're in the in-group, which I think is fantastic, right? That's a, that's a gift that a lot of people, very few people have. We started this whole conversation with Sheila. She's saying she knew you back in college where there were maybe some immature behaviors. And now you are a professor at a university. When you see certain activities or certain immaturity in your students, what kind of actions do you take? What kind of stances do you take? Can you talk a little about a little bit about that? Sure. First thing I do which is completely useless, is in my syllabus, which never gets read. Which, well, that would be why, because it's in the (laughs) syllabus. The first thing I want people to get from me is, I know a lot of them actually do read the syllabus and things like that, is I want them to understand that this is not an environment for putting other people down. I make it clear from both sides of that argument. One side, obviously, don't put people down based upon their life experiences or their ethnicity or what have you. But also, if someone calls you out for doing something like that and you didn't realize you did it, stop, think, and listen. Because it's a learning experience for everyone. And I I want people to understand that, you know, this is college. It's a time for growth. And people are going to make mistakes. And if you get called on the carpet for it, be big enough to make those changes in your life. You know, like we did in college. We, We were lucky. We were lucky that our group was not terribly like that. And whereas other places in the college might have been horrible, right? Yeah. But our, our group was very open-minded in a lot of ways. You know, I've also been lucky in that most of the places I've worked in different research or collegiate environments has been very much the same way. It's been a very multicultural working environment. There have been people of different gender preferences and whatnot. See, I did it too right there. Not gender preferences, gender identities. Don't edit it out, leave it in because I am correcting myself. An act of allyship right there. Hi, I'm Greg Tinker and I'm correcting myself. I am correcting myself. (laughs) (laughs) I try to bring that mindset to the classroom. I make sure the TAs that are underneath me have that mindset as well. I tell them, hey, this is not appropriate if you're going to do X, Y, Z. Don't do things like think of the undergraduates as your dating pool or something like that, you know, just the kinds of stuff that are very prevalent in academia sometimes. When I have somebody who works in my lab and they ask me for a letter of recommendation, I go to bat for them like nobody's business because most of the people who work for me are either women or they're from another country. I make sure they get the position they're going after and I have a high success rate doing that. So, you know, that's probably the best act of allyship I can do in my position as a professor right there is make sure that they have that visible position that others can then look up to and say, oh, hey, 
I want to be like Amir someday, you know, something like that. We hear that a lot as we're grappling with racial and gender equity in workplaces now. So often the assessment of someone's skills or abilities is like very superficial, right? And, and there's a sense of like, oh, well, you know, we picked this guy, this white guy or this guy because, because he fit with our culture. And without examining what that means, the flip side of that is if a woman or a person of color happen or you know someone on uh, you know who's not heterosexual gets into a role that they often lack for mentors and sponsors to really push them up in a way that white men and and you know certainly they're at, you know they get the most support from their you know, supervisors and, and mentors and sponsorship and here, try this cool project or whatever. Um, they're put in the positions to learn and grow a lot from a professional standpoint. So having like, that's another really amazing thing I think that you are doing for the people who work for you, which is like, no, I'm not just going to teach you to be a good, you know, help you become a great scientist, but also I'm gonna sponsor you and really do what I can to help you land a great position. Yeah, and I think that's really important to do. And people overlook that as an act of allyship. Okay, I'll claim that one. <laughs> I think that is probably the most important thing I do. I think that one of the things in terms of, especially gender, is uh, when there is a person of power that is a man, a lot they're they're called Mister Such and Such or Doctor Such and Such or you know, President Joe Biden, and then you have Kamala, you have Hillary. So I know you do a specific thing that you put in some of your Zoom videos and stuff like that in your, in your frequently asked questions. Can you talk about that a little bit and, and where that started? Sure. So if you are in academia, um, it's very common in that professional setting that the students coming in and they don't know any better, okay, but they don't understand the professional way in which you address the person who is running the classroom. They don't understand the differences between things like master's degrees and doctorates and when to call somebody a professor or a doctor or this, that, and the other thing. So one of the things I try to do is educate them on that. And so I feel like I'm always educating on these things. It's kind of like my role. You know, I tell them, look, I'm a white guy more people are just going to automatically give me respect when I walk into the classroom because I'm a white guy. So I've kind of coasted by saying, ah, oh, you don't need to call me Dr. Tinkler or whatever. You can call me Dr. Greg or something like that. But um, over the years, I've come to realize that my colleagues of color and the women that I work with as well don't get that automatic level of respect. And they have a hard time being seen as equals. And in fact, sometimes the students even treat them more like students equals as opposed to the student professor relationship. And it starts with something as simple as what you call them. Women in the classroom get called miss. They don't get called professor or doctor nearly as much as I do, just as a matter of happenstance. But miss or misses or you know, any, anything that doesn't actually include their professional credentials. You know, people of color face the same problem because they're more likely, even if it's a man, they're still probably not going to get called Dr. So-and-so. It's probably going to be Mr. So-and-so. Or just their first name. Or just their first name. So I make it a point to tell them, look, I'm pretty easygoing, but one thing I'm going to insist upon is that you get in the habit of calling me Dr. Such-and-Such. -such. 
because I want you to go into other environments and do the same thing and make sure the people who put the work in to get the degree are afforded the respect they deserve. And that works to some extent. I still have to course correct a few people here and there. Sometimes it's the little things, you know. At some point it becomes about them and not about you, right? So there's a, that's like, you can't change everyone's behavior, but if you can, if you can make it so that that person's next professor, most people's next professor, the person that they are working with, that they um, defer to a place of respect rather than to a place of familiarity. And, and honestly, I, you know, I try to tell them too, look, someday I'd like to be able to call you doctor. Maybe that's in your career path. So let's just get in the habit of doing that professional courtesy now. When you get outside the classroom and you're in a real work environment, you might get actually dinged on it if you don't do it. So let's just practice the behaviors now. And then when you have people of color and women or the non-white man in your classroom, they get into the habit of it's okay to demand that, to say like, no, I put in this work that if and when I become Dr. So-and-so, it's okay to say, call me Dr. So-and-so. I hope they do. I think that's important. So I have one additional sort of area I want to talk about before we head toward the very end of the, the conversation, which is you referenced earlier that you have a son. I have three kids. It's just that the, uh, the age gap between the older two and the youngest coincided with setting off the 2016 election stuff I talked about earlier. Right. So and the, uh, thank you for that, Greg, because I know you do have an older daughter and older son, um, but you came into their lives when they were four and six. So not quite the same relationship you have with them as you do with your youngest kid. And that you also, you know, referenced earlier that when our previous president was elected in 2016, you were looking at your kid, this your youngest and going, oh, well, I need to be different. I need to, I need to make changes because of what you're trying, with the values that you're trying to pass on to him, right? So can you talk a little bit about what you hope your, like where you hope your son will go or what kind of young adult your son will become and how you hope that you can sort of coach him. You can't make him be anything, obviously, but. Do you make him call you Dr. Tingler? Yes, call me Dr. <laughs> Tingler or you don't get any dinner. You know, that's totally how this household works. That's how, right, that's what it seems like. <laughs> don't forget to brush your teeth. I know. <laughs> like I said, sometimes it's the little things. Basic hygiene is one of them. I don't want to make this all about him because I have, you know, obviously I parented our older two children. Uh, maybe not their entire lives, but for a good chunk of them. And I honestly have to say, if he is going to end up, if William, our youngest, is going to end up like someone in regards to things like openness of accepting other people or, um, you know, not being a jerk, <laughs> I hope he's like his older brother and sister. That's one thing I am really proud of is Tara and I, I feel, did a really good job with um, raising Aurora and Zave to not be biased like that. As far as I can tell, they're not either overtly or covertly racist and sexist like that. I mean, sometimes a little something will creep in, but by and large, they're down to earth, good people, and they're very accepting and they're very just kind. And so I hope William grows up to be like them in that regard. 
There was definitely a, a pressing aspect of the society that your son was going to sort of come into consciousness in, William was going to come into consciousness in, versus what was happening 10 years prior when your older two were growing up and like, oh, they're four and six. And who was president then? Obama. Right. It was a it's a different headspace versus what came after Obama looking at what William was going to be like. This is the world around him when he's actually going to start paying attention to what is around him. Right. So there's a bit it's a little bit more pressing to right. be intentional about combating that those messages it's getting in from everywhere. We've been very intentional about combating those messages from the get go with him. Um, one of the first things uh, we did with him kind of out publicly uh, was we took him to one of those um, kids in cages protests that we had here in Akron back in like 2017, I think it was. And, you know, he didn't understand exactly what was going on. So we took the time to explain it to him and he remembers it still today and could explain to you now why we were there and what was wrong with the situation. And it's just kind of blossomed from there because we're like, hey, you know, you like getting involved with stuff. Do you want to know more about the types of people who have been involved with stuff? His heroes are people like Martin Luther King, like Sally Ride. I think he really likes her. John Lewis, he loves John Lewis. It's like one of his favorites. So, I mean, we have um, this set of comic books, or graphic novels actually called March um, that he helped co-write, if I remember correctly, that we read with him. And, you know, we had to, you know, hey, buddy, these are kind of violent. But this is how it is, you know, to be a civil rights leader. And you know, they're very good at instructing, I think, now, people nowadays exactly what was fought for back then. And so William's very kind hearted. Like, I don't know that I've ever met a kid who is just as genuinely nice as this kid. And I, I, I'm biased. I have to say that, I guess. But for real, everybody loves him for who he is. And he loves everyone for who they are. Everybody in school wants to, you know, work with him. He wants to go out of his way to work with people if they don't have a partner. It, I mean, he's just a kind-hearted person. I hope he maintains that the rest of his life. One thing I love about him is just how much genuine curiosity he has about other cultures. I remember you had asked me about some books about Indian culture, and I'd sent you some some links and he's like oh my god he loves them oh my god yes. and then when I suggested <laughs> this game this video game and he's like obsessed with it and then was so sad when it was over right when he was done playing it he's like oh he was like almost crying it was over it was like he no he loves Indian culture I mean you know you you threw that game which one was that Raji at us and I mean he just took to that like nobody's business in part because of the culture behind it not because it was flashy one of the things I was really struck by, like I started playing it and I almost started crying because it was the first game that I had ever seen, first actually true media representation of Indian culture that was done respectfully and beautifully. The art in that game is gorgeous. really gorgeous. But then there, are, you, you know, you hear the, you hear some of the background narration and you're hearing stories about the mythology the combination of the art and the story was so beautiful. And then it's like a fun game to play. I almost started crying. But then the fact that he was like almost crying when it was over is like, I was touched. Yeah, he, he asked me for like six months afterwards when part two was coming out. So oh. <laughs> our second to our penultimate question, our second to last question, we ask everybody, asterisk on all of this. So when we say, give everyone, you know, what would, what advice would you give? We recognize that you did not like an expert 
if someone, you know, a student of yours or, you know, some, a postdoc or something is like, Hey, you know, I keep running into this dude that I got to work with. And he's just, a just keeps making these, like just this side of off color. Mm -hmm. And it's really bugging me. What should I do? Or I'm really starting to realize how I'm contributing to certain problems. What can I do? What would you say to them? Well, um, you know, I want to handle it. <laughs> so let me step in and take care of it. Let me fix so, this. I mean, honestly, what I would do is I would probably tell them, start documenting things. You don't have to do anything with it, but start documenting things because if it escalates, you want to make sure you have a paper trail. And I, maybe it's not going to, odds are it's not going to be a big deal down the road, but if it is, you need to have your butt covered. And I, that's kind of irrespective of a person's ethnicity or gender or whatever. That's just basic good advice for functioning in a workplace is make sure you document stuff. But specifically for women or people of color who might not be as likely to be believed, I think it's really important. Um, I would tell them to be, you know, open with the person as much as they feel comfortable with. If not, I will be happy to step in and say something. <laughs> I will direct them to our ombuds office if things start to escalate a little bit, just to make sure that they know they have options. I think that's the most important thing to know is that they have options. They don't have to sit there and listen to it. Go to the department chair if you think that's appropriate. Talk to your lab um, advisor if you think that's appropriate, but talk to somebody. And if you need me to do it, I will. And what would you say to someone who's like, I'm seeing this stuff in myself. Well, how do I stop being that guy or that person? Because it's not just that guy, right? Women also perpetuate this as well. Unfortunately, I've not really run into people being that introspective. But you have been that. I have been that. And I feel like the people who would ask me that question have already done it. And so they don't need my input on it. I, I would tell them most important thing you can do, stop talking. Just stop talking. Listen. You don't have to say anything. Just listen for a while and see if that changes things. Because really, it's a problem of valuing the other person. And if you don't value them, you don't listen to them. I mean, maybe you value them and you think you value them. But if you don't really value them the, at the same level that you value yourself or people who look like you, and you're maybe not going to treat them as being fully actualized adults like you should. That's great advice. That's really fantastic. I got to work on that too myself, probably. So. <laughs> I think we all do. Right. No, I mean, I think we all do. We all have a tendency in some way, shape, or form to listen to other people functionally, not holistically, right? It's like, oh, what do you need to tell me? What do I need to learn from this? Or what do I need to understand from this conversation? We'll form a committee. This is really important. So we're going to form a committee and the committee will get to the bottom of it 30 years from now with no recommendations. And they're all going to look like <laughs> uh, me. Right. I value you because you're my lab assistant and I need to know what's happening over here. But like, I don't value you outside of your, your usefulness to me, right? I think that is- There's a lot of that. There's a lot of that, I think, all over the place that's devaluing someone's full humanity. And that really, I mean, that is exactly what 
the name of this podcast came from, right, is a woman of color demanding to be listened to, or at least for the white man to stop talking. So because he was speaking, <laughs> he wasn't listening, but that's really what so many people have been asking for. Kamala Harris finally said what I have been trying to say in my whole career is like, hey, I'm speaking, like, let me, let me talk. And the realization that it just takes actually shutting up and listening to go so far in stopping some of the, you know, or at least challenging some of those stances in your own self. Life advice for us all. (laughs) Shut up and listen. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So the last question is, you know, adding a little levity and you are, I'm going to say you're a supporter and a fan of this podcast. So you know (laughs) that we talk, I'm going to make sure you say you're a fan, but you know that we talk about Femelect in the end. uh, And it really, you know, what we're finding out, you know, why we talk weird with our family and it really comes down to like these shared stories. Can you talk, uh, can you give a couple examples of your own (laughs) Femelect? How long do you want to be here for? Give us a few. Give us like a a best hits. Things of, I'll talk about the older kids first. So the kind of. Wait, hold on. Shalusha's like cracking up. Oh, because I'm thinking about, you know, I never knew this term of Familect until recently. But as I'm talking, as we're talking to Greg, I'm thinking about all the Familect from college. Let's, let's not go there. (laughs) I know, but there's there's so much. There is so much. It's ridiculous. Right. And it's like, you could it still comes up in text threads and stuff oh, like know, that where people just say stuff and it's like <laughs> nobody else understands nobody else would ever oh i know they would think we're crazy it. so we'll we'll skip over that family act but your point being and and greg you talked about this in terms of like your found family that family act is not just about you know who, who you grew up with okay so talk about you were going to say aurora and zave aurora and zave the older kids um we have a number of just little words and stuff like that. Like some of them stem from Zave um, had a little trouble pronouncing certain words when he was younger. Um, you know, it's just it, everybody gets um, matures at their own rate. And he came up with things like pancakes for breakfast. And um, he couldn't say his G's very well for a while. So I was Dweg. <laughs> it was really adorable. Are you still Dweg? I am not Dweg anymore. Oh, okay. no. I have not been Dweg for a long time. Aurora decided I was Gerg for a while, but um, she spawn that out of her dyslexia <laughs> you're gerg yeah i am gerg i like that That's amazing. <laughs> i mean william and i have our own kind of little language where we make noises at each other to communicate our emotions that's kind of weird um, um and tara's dad is probably the largest producer of our familect because for whatever reason he just operated on a slightly different level than everybody else and he would just make up wrong versions of words and use them and think that they were the right versions of words. So he, he didn't use them. Ironically, no. He used them for real. So for instance, the bago, not bagel, bago. And he always just kind of said bago. And we thought, oh, he was just, you know, pronouncing things kind of like a Northwestern kind of Ohioan. No, but then he wrote it on the grocery list one day, B-A-G-O. And then we started really paying attention to all the different stuff that he come out with. So like, he doesn't say twice, he says twice. You don't drive a Chevy, you drive a Chevy. Like a Chev? Like right, 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 right. You get pulled, <laughs> you get pulled over by the sheriff, not the sheriff. <laughs> just, there is an ongoing, just somebody, I think my, my sister-in-law has the list where it's just ridiculous. Now, do you call it Bago at home? 
oh yeah, now we all call it Bago. And we all, you know, say twice whenever we talk about something happening two times. So. Oh, that is definitely family. Yes. Our, our mom says um, in just case or in just cases instead of just in case. And for a long time, I would say in just cases, like my mom would say. Oh no. And then one time, <laughs> one time I said in just cases and Brian like stopped and listened and I didn't say like my mom would say and Brian was like called me out and was like oh no you didn't you just said it like yourself now and then I was like nope stopping like I, I don't say I don't say in just cases anymore we're not going there we're not, I'm not doing it yeah our mom has some stuff like that trust if you're trust or Yosemite and apparently this is an Indian thing it's not just my mom but I've heard other Indian people say that their parents will say Yosemite like, like some sort of Indian like name. So it's Yoshemita or Yoshemiti. And also when we were in San Francisco visiting Shailashi when before she got married, my mom asked us uh, if we were gonna go see Alcatraz instead of Alcatraz. Alcatraz, okay. And then we said, like we would say it, like this is mom, oh no, that's not how you say it. But she's like, no, mm. it's Alcatraz. Like, there's a lot of, yeah, things yeah. like that. Right. And now like that, that. that we call it that ironically, sure. but then when it becomes not ironically, you have to, right, right, right. <laughs> you have to it just it works its way in and you just have yeah. to. Yeah. Yeah. I like bagel though. But bagel is very, very close to a word that we use in our house to describe something that's big, which is bigel. Bigel. Like bagel, <laughs> but big all. And also shiv- a shivy. Shivy. Yeah. So I say, I got shivved in the shank and shanked in the shiv. <laughs> no, it was in a show. And then I just say it all the time for no reason. Like I'll, like if like Shawshank Redemption comes on, I will say I get shivved in the shank and shaved in the oh, shank God. in the shiv. It means nothing, but right. I'll say it. And everyone in, like in this house, they know where it's coming from and that like mom's just being a nutcase, but means nothing. A lot of people are like, I don't know at all. And then you start talking and then it's like, oh yeah, this one thing and that thing. And people think it's about being interesting. Like I've noticed a a few people have been like, oh, my family's not that interesting. We don't do that. You do. You just don't realize it. Exactly. It's not about being interesting. It's, it's about being human actually. And that you shorthand things and you, you know, there's, there's mispronunciations or mistranslations or a lot of toddler speak. Well, and, I, and that's the thing, which is if it's so part of your family, you don't think it's interesting. This is just something that you say in your family. And after a while, it just becomes so like every day that you're like, whatever, it's not, nobody cares to hear or this. You, or you don't even remember it. You just do it because there's like a priming effect or something. In the moment, you'll recall it. But now if somebody asks you, you'd be like, Oh, I don't know. Exactly. That's why now we yeah. start prepping people for it. So they have a little time. Because before <laughs> we're like, what's some of your family act? And they're like, uh. now we prep them. So they have a little time yeah. to think about it. Yeah. Sure. Um, thank you, Greg, so much for talking to us. It was, oh, sure. It's great to talk to you all the time anyway. But I think it was like really especially joyful for me to have a conversation with you that's structured around, you know, sort of like how you've seen yourself from the time before I knew you to now and sort of what's sort of contributed to who you are, which is, that's always fascinating for me to hear like, oh, this is my good friend. And how did they get to be this person? (laughs) Yeah. One thing that we're definitely finding is like, you know, especially with people who we're friends with or that we're close to is like, well, I know that person, I know their experience. 
but there's never been a time probably a sober time probably that you two, that we have <laughs> you have just sat down and talked about yourself and your experience for two hours it's exhausting <laughs> you did a good job oh thank you and it's really fun to hear people's journeys oh, i'm glad you're enjoying it podcast is wonderful thank you thank you william, william likes it too by the way is he listening oh my god that's awesome so I drove out to um, my parents' house in Pennsylvania. Then on the way back, I was listening to this podcast. I would, he listened to one with me. When it was over, I'm like, you want to change the station or listen to something else? He's like, no, let's just keep listening to this. I like it. We, we, we hit like three or four episodes. It was nice. That's awesome. I'm really hoping this kid's going to be my son-in-law. <laughs> it could happen. I know. So the one thing you have to do is tell them both. Absolutely. You may never talk to this person <laughs> ever. Whatever happens, don't date. No. I forbid it. I for I forbid. I need to say I forbid it. That will do it. Cement it right there. Greg, you are fantastic. We love you. Thank you for coming on. 